turn in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, verse 32. We are talking about marriage and divorce. And we are talking about Jesus' kingdom and how he calls us to a higher, deeper righteousness in this passage. We're going to take that theme that we've been exploring and we're going to apply it to divorce and marriage today. Now, here's two potential landmines we need to steer clear of or we need to just be aware of. The first landmine is this. We have people in our midst who have known a divorce. Can I just say, we're not here to beat up on you, to judge you. We are here today to hold out the hope, the help, the comfort, and the inspiration and strength that the gospel provides. The last like five minutes of this sermon is solely dedicated to you and next steps and moving forward. Landmine number two is this. Come on over here. This is a sermon where if I know people, remember I wasn't always a pastor. I've sat on your side listening to sermons on divorce and remarriage. To know the nuts and bolts of when is it okay to get a divorce, when is it not okay to get a divorce, and then when is it okay to get remarried after a divorce, and when is it not okay? I've become convinced that this is not necessarily the passage to go deep there. We will cover that topic, we will cover it superficially, but don't forget, we have two verses today, but in Matthew 19, when we get there in what, like five years, don't worry, Jesus has like ten verses dedicated more to that. That is a much better, more appropriate text for that sermon, and that sermon will be much better serving that particular text. So we'll cover it, but just not super deeply. But if you have questions, we're here. Let's talk. Let's have the conversation. Sound good, Grace? All right, well, we live in a day and age where since the 60s and 70s and the dawn of no-fault divorce, we all know the statistics, right? One in two marriages fail. One in two marriages fail. This divorce rate skyrocketed once no-fault divorce set in. And friends, when you look at the statistics, the church is not that different. We're somewhere in the 40s. So we're doing a little better, but it's still too high when you understand Jesus' words in fact, let's go to Jesus' words. We need help. We need hope. We're going to see the prohibition, but then we're also going to see the good and what we should run after it and the hope that he provides. Listen to God's word. Here's Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word and grace. This is the word of the Lord. And it is given to us in love and for our good. Now, how are we going to get this passage? How are we going to unpack it? How are we going to understand it? Here's where we're going this morning. Four things we learn. Four things we learn. First is this. We need to adopt God's strong stance on divorce. We need to adopt his stance. But we don't just need to adopt his stance. We need to understand why he takes such a strong stance. So that's our second point. Our third point is this. Once we get it, once we understand it, once we understand the why, we need to stand with him. 
And the first way we stand with them, this is point number three, is we aim at thriving kingdom marriages. We aim ourselves at thriving marriages, but that's not all. It's not just about me and my marriage. We have to join in God's standard by helping others to do the same. That's where we're going. That's the flow. Let's go to that first point. Let's see how we need to adopt God's strong stance on divorce. Go with me to verse 31. We've got to unpack this. Just a quick heads up. There are some cultural things we need to know, we need to understand, that really help us get Jesus' words right and steer clear from what Jesus is not saying. Go to verse 31. In verse 31, Jesus is paraphrasing an Old Testament passage on divorce. He's paraphrasing Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Let's bring that verse up. Let's bring that passage up. Do you see how in verse 1, yep, that's what Jesus is saying in Matthew's Gospel. Is that clear? We got that. We're good, right? What else is happening in Deuteronomy 24? Here's the flow. Here's how Deuteronomy 24 works. Here's how divorce worked in the Old Testament. If there were indecencies in a woman, she could lose favor in her husband's eyes, and he was permitted to divorce her, but he had to do something first. He had to issue her, issue her, yes, a certificate of divorce stating that she was free to remarry. Remarriage was already built into divorce in the Old Testament. And then in verses 3 and 4, what we see is this. You were prohibited from marrying that lady ever again. Doesn't matter if her new husband divorces her. Doesn't matter if the new husband dies. You're done. This is an amazing protection for women. How? It prevents a man from saying, Wife number one, uh, she's good for a while. Ooh. Wife number two, wife number one, go away. I've got wife number two. Whoa, you are not what I thought. I'm going back to wife number one. Do you see how it kept men from eating out of the variety pack? Do you see how it was the protection for women in a day and age that was highly chauvinistic? Our God is good, he is kind in Deuteronomy 24, but there was a problem, there was an issue. Look at that word indecency, and look at that phrase, lost favor in her husband's eyes. Moses gave this command in 1500 BC, 1400 BC, and that phrase, indecency, led to a debate. It led to a debate that over 1500 years, people said, what does this mean? The Jewish scholars, priests, and rabbis came up with where we land in Jesus' day. They came up with three options for how to unpack that verse. Here are the three options. Here are the three options. One school, one Jewish seminary said this. Indecency means only sexual immorality. That's number one. The second Jewish seminary said this. No, it's actually more permissive. Indecency is anything indecent. And they even wrote down that if a woman spoiled or burned her husband's dinner, that was grounds for divorce. How you doing, ladies? Right? It gets worse. Seminary number three said this. They said, don't even worry about the phrase indecency. Look at the phrase, love. I see a lot of husbands. Don't talk to your wives right now. <laughs> Unless you're telling her she's a great cook, do not talk to her, right? Here's number three. Number three said this. Look at that phrase. Lost favor in her husband's eyes. 
Seminary number three honed in on that and said, if you find a prettier woman, you're free to divorce and go after the prettier woman. Wow. Wow. Now, knowing men the way we know men, which viewpoints carried the day? Which viewpoints, which schools of thought were the most dominant in Jewish society? Number two and number three, the most permissive ones, right? So what happens is in Jesus' day, a culture of divorce is flourishing. It's running wild. Let me show you an example. There is a Jewish noble named Josephus who's very important when you go to the seminaries and study the Old Testament. But look at his life. He wrote a biography. Look at his attitude towards divorce. This is symptomatic of the day. Let's read these words. He says, I this is a guy who lived while Jesus was alive. He says, I divorced my wife also. Why? I wasn't pleased with her behavior. But I waited until we had three kids and buried two of them. That's cruel. That's not okay. That's not good. That's not God's design. As I have researched this, I am not convinced that Jesus' day was so different from our day and age of no-fault divorce. So what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus doing? Let's go to verse 32. Let's go to verse 32. This is going to help us see what Jesus is saying in verse 32. Jesus is saying, you can't get divorced just because she's getting older. You can't get divorced just because she, she, she messed up and made a mistake. You just can't kick her down the road because she let you down. No, that's not what my kingdom is about. That kind of self-serving, selfish attitude has no place in my kingdom. When self reigns over other, people do not thrive, and that is antithetical to my kingdom. You see that? What Jesus is saying is this. No, my kingdom is a kingdom of a deeper, richer goodness and rightness. It is one where self decreases in the service of other increasing. That's at the very heart of Christian authority, of spiritual authority. It is a self-giving away to lift up other people. Jesus says, that's the ethos of my kingdom, and it's an ethos that allows all people everywhere to thrive. That's what we're about. So in verse 32, Jesus swims against the current culture to call these new converts, these new disciples, into his kingdom ethic and to a stronger stance on divorce. That's what's happening there. Jesus is saying, this is so serious that you should only terminate a marriage under some of those extreme circumstances. Now, Okay, what circumstances? So come over here, come over here, real quick. I'm going to cover it quickly and then save it for Matthew 19. First, this passage is clear. Adultery is automatic grounds for divorce. It just is. It's clear in the text. But what about abuse? What about neglect? What about abandonment? As we look to the wider body of Scripture, this is an area of huge debate. I personally would say this. And I don't even know the other pastors and elders may not fully agree with me, and that's okay. We'll work it out together and find God's will. But in cases of abuse, neglect, and abandonment, it can, or other forms of sexual immorality even, like a porn addiction that's not going away, it may get bad enough to where, yes, divorce is permissible. 
We'll cover that in more detail later in Matthew 19. But the main point here is this. God takes divorce so seriously that in any other case, here's what he says. He says, ending one marriage starts your new marriage off on adulterous grounds. And it doesn't just start your new marriage off. It starts three other people off on an adulterous footing. Your new spouse, your ex, your ex's new spouse. I mean, Jesus is drawing a tight circle here. The main point, the main thing we've got to get clear is this. In his kingdom, there is a higher, deeper righteousness to marriage, and divorce actually takes us in the opposite direction. Let me say it this way. Willy-nilly divorce takes us in the opposite direction. This is our king's stance. This is his kingdom ethos behind that stance. And so this is our stance as his subject. But there's a question. There's a question, isn't there? How do I adopt this stance? What does it look like for me to adopt this stance? Adopting this stance means that we don't just give up on marriage, but we've got to do more than that. We've got to look to Jesus, our King, for the answers, right? Like, if, here's the thing. This sounds hard. This sounds harsh, but there's a beauty in it, right? Like, if Jesus is not pro-divorce, that means he's pro-marriage. If he doesn't want you getting divorced, that means he's going to use the Holy Spirit and his word to provide you all kinds of help and hope. He has answers. How does he have answers? Let's look at some scenarios. Let's just consider some scenarios and see how the gospel speaks to divorce and marriage. Scenario number one. Are you experiencing in your marriage what a divorce court would call irreconcilable differences? Yes. You have a king in Jesus who reconciled your irreconcilable difference with the Lord God Almighty. He took you, and he made you the father's child. If he can reconcile that, what reconciliation can he not bring between you and your spouse? There's hope. There's hope. What about this? What about this? Are you facing, are you facing money problems? How we do chores and divide labor in the home? How we're going to raise the kids? And are those a constant source of conflict in the marriage. Anybody want to raise their hand and say no? <laughs> right? We've all been there. What do we do? What do we do? How does Jesus help? How does the gospel speak to this? We learn at 1 Corinthians that Jesus is the very wisdom of God. If he is the wisdom of God, if he is pro-marriage, and there are answers on stewardship. There is wisdom that he holds out as we seek him and seek what glorifies him. Here's another scenario, another scenario. Here's a popular one. Well, as we've gotten older and developed, we, we've learned that we're not compatible anymore. One branch of this is very callous and needs to be challenged. Another branch of this, oh man. Can I just say, if your spouse develops a serious physical condition or mental health condition and their personality changes, I am so sorry. Your Savior is with you, He is for you, and He knows what you're going through. But at the same day, at the same time, so on the same day, at the same time, if we try to appeal to compatibility, the Gospel speaks to that too. How does the Gospel speak to that? It says this, Jesus saved you. 
even when you were in sin and incompatible with him, he still reached down into that incompatibility and he applied grace, he applied mercy, he applied forgiveness. And now, as you grow older and there's some new gaps that are emerging, guess what? You can extend that same love, grace, mercy, faithfulness, commitment, and love to each other. You really can. You really can. How about this one? My heart breaks on this one. What if you were, okay, you're born here, you get married, and then over here you become a Christian. And now you're watching your friends. And you're seeing Christian marriage. And you're seeing some good ones. And you're wanting that. You're brokenhearted because you don't have that. There's a pull. Can I leave? That, 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 oh, that guy, just his wife died. He's single, right? Can we go there? No, we can't. No, we can't. Oh, if Jesus committed to you when you were not committed to him, how do you display that commitment that he showed to you, to your spouse that is uncommitted to Jesus. You display that commitment by doubling down on your commitment to your spouse and trying to love them to the Lord. Grace, the gospel, speaks to divorce and marriage. You know, there's other situations that we could cover, but know this, know this. Regardless of your situation, Jesus Christ is not just anti-divorce. He is pro-marriage. And if he's pro-marriage, he's pro-you. He's pro-your spouse. He's pro-the bond between you. That means he is invested in seeing your marriage flourish and grow, and he has help for you in the midst of those struggles. Oh, grace, there is a beauty and a strength strength when you see, when you see that we should adopt his strong stance. Amen. But once we see the stance, once we've adopted that stance, what do we do next? It so helps to understand why God takes such a strong stance. We need to understand some of the whys, right? Especially if you're here and you're not sure about Jesus. Like if you're not a Christian, you may be thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not signing up for that. You forbid divorce, and guess what? You're unkind, you're old-fashioned, you're taking us back to the dark ages, and you're keeping, this is a popular one, you're keeping me from reaching my highest potential. Not so fast, not so fast, no. When you see God's reasoning behind his stance, or well, you're not coming to God's reasoning, you just see the world's research on divorce, you will see that your potential Father in heaven is so good and wise and kind. Let's look at the data. Let's hop in. Let's look at three reasons. Here's the first reason why. It's this. In any divorce, in any divorce, this is hard to say, it's painful to say, but Jesus is with you, okay? In any divorce, there are negative impacts on the children. We all know about custody arrangements, right? How mom typically gets more time with the dad, dad's looking at weekends, maybe there's a joint arrangement, but time with dad drops. What a lot of people don't know is that mom usually has to work longer hours or she has to go get a job, so her time with the kids also drops. That affects resiliency. Divorce also compromises child development in other ways. Here's a slew of different studies that I researched, I'm distilling them for you. Here's what I found. Kids growing up in single-parent homes are twice as likely 
to experience psychiatric disorders, they're twice as likely to commit or attempt suicide, and they're twice as likely to develop an alcohol addiction. They're three to eight times, depending on the study, more likely to experience neighborhood violence. And growing up in a single parent home is the number one factor impacting a child's future social mobility. Oh man, it can hurt the kids. You might respond to that in a callous way and say, no problem. Uh, I gotcha. All of your data was focused on single parent homes. Just go get remarried. Problem solved, right? Ah, hold on, what did you just say? What did you just say if you said go get remarried? You said that marriage is better than divorce. You just implicitly agreed that divorce is not good, it's not ideal. You're on our team. All right, here we go. Here is a quote from a professor of pediatrics, and listen to the university, University of California, San Francisco. Not exactly a conservative bastion, right? <laughs> what does this professor of pediatrics say? Read this quote with me. The best scientific literature to date suggests that with the exception of parents faced with unresolvable marital violence, children fare better when parents work at maintaining the marriage. As a result, society should make every effort to support healthy marriages and to discourage married couples from divorce. That's from Dr. Jane Anderson, not Josie, excuse me, at the University of California, San Francisco. Grace. There's impacts on the kids, that's number one. What's number two? Number two is this, is divorce rarely actually works. It doesn't produce healthier, happier marriages. It actually gets more divorce. Here's the data. One in two first-time marriages may fail, but two in three second-time marriages fail. Three in four third-time marriages fail. Are there exceptions? Yes, but did you catch that? 50%, 66%, to 75%. You'd think we'd get it better the next time around, we'd learn our lessons, but no, we don't. And by the time we pull the trigger on the first one, we're primed to pull the trigger on the second and the third one. That's two. What's three? Three is this. Divorce takes a toll on our society. Right, like take yourself that's impacted, take the kids that are impacted, and multiply that out across the 300 million people in the United States. One, per, one researcher at the University of Utah did a study and found that in 2003, we spent $33 billion supporting divorce. It could have been in the form of legal fees, lost work productivity, juvenile crime, juvenile substance abuse, mental health costs, and raised taxes for government support services. 33 billion in 2003. By comparison, the Indiana state budget in 2003 was $18 billion. That gives some context. There's all kinds of reasons we could go, but here's a final word, a final word. I want you to notice that I didn't use a biblical argument. I use research. I use science, right? I'm trying to speak the cultural language, right? I don't want you to say, you use the Bible, you're biased, I don't agree with that, uh-uh, we're not on the same footing. No, I'm on your turf, right? Like science is king, it's objective, it's empirical, it's not that subjective, being a faith that we can't prove. No, I don't your territory. Look, science is beautiful. It is good. Why? Because 
Because all truth is God's truth, and if all truth is God's truth, when science affirms the timeless truth found in the Bible, maybe we should give the Bible a chance. So try it today. Let's read it together. All right. There are some of the reasons why God does not accept divorce except under extreme conditions. Our Father in Heaven really is wise. He really does know what He's doing. He really did design it and make it to work in harmony. And if you mess with one of the pieces of society, you mess with the others. That's the why. That's the why. What's the how? How do we do this? How do we stand with Him? Let's go to point number three. Let's stand with Him by driving after and pursuing Thriving marriages, thriving marriages. Here's the thing. It's not enough to just say, avoid divorce. That, that, that is not the higher, deeper righteousness of his kingdom. It's not just avoid the divorce. It's, it, it, it's the opposite. We've got to do the good. We've got to pursue and run after the positive, right? We've got to pursue thriving marriages. You can have a stale marriage, a moldy marriage. You can have a marriage where you're just functional roommates, and that doesn't honor God either. That's not his higher for righteousness with respect to marriage. And at the end of the day, God does want you to be happy. He does want you to have joy. That's a big reason why he created Eve, as we read in our Old Testament reading. He wants you to thrive. Let me prove it to you. Let me prove it to you. Let's go back to a text we looked at last week. Go to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Do you see the bold font there? Male and female, he created them. He created both male and female in his image, but male and female together in marriage reflect his image. Have you ever thought about that? The two-in-one of marriage reflects the three-in-one of our Trinitarian God. When you pursue a healthy marriage, you are running after the same harmony, unity, and love that is found in the Trinity. You're showing the world what God is like when you run after a thriving marriage. And if that is true, then God must be for healthy marriages, and God must actually not really kind of like a limping Marriage. We have to work at them. We have to get after them. So how? How do we do this? I need some help with that. I'm not a perfect husband. I admit that. I've got my in-laws here, right? How many of us need help? We need help. In past sermons on marriage, we've encouraged date nights. We've talked about the difference between hearing and listening. We've talked about dying to self and modeling repentance. And last week, I have a gut feeling we covered romance and sexuality. I stand by all of those, but let's cover a new piece of ground. Let's look at this one way. We can run after a thriving marriage. It's this. Pastor and scholar Dan Doriani says it's so much better than I can, so I'm just taking a page out of his book, and here you go. I can't do better. Here's what he says. He says, we have to guard against discontentment, and we have to run after contentment with our spouse. He says this, of course, every husband or wife has failings. I love this. He says, my wife eats the big strawberry at the top of my ice cream sundae, please, and I drink the orange juice that she pours for herself the next morning. Guys. <laughs> Right? He says it's no sin to notice these flaws, but it is a sin to become discontent with the spouse that God has given us. 
He says, discontentment with a spouse drives out love. It drives out respect. Discontentment is actually prideful. Why? Because when you're discontent, you actually think you deserve better. Discontentment is distrusting God's providence and provision because it accuses God, not your spouse, but it accuses God of giving you the wrong spouse. He closes with this. The culture says, get the best partner that you can, but we, as Jesus' people, should say this. God has given me this man and this woman, and then we should not ask what our spouse can do for us, but we should ask what we can do for our spouse. Look at that last sentence. Contentment is the partner of love that breeds faithfulness. It breeds thriving. We need to pursue contentment and guard against discontentment in our marriages. How? How do we do that? How do we do that? We do it by putting the magnifying glass on their needs and how we can serve them, and we get the magnifying glass off of what my spouse has done for me lately. Jesus doesn't do that with us. We can't do it with our spouses. As we guard against discontentment, as we run after contentment, God really will bless our marriages, and it really will thrive the way he designed. There will be joy. It will be hard. It will be work. But there will be joy and happiness and growth. That's the first way we stand with him. We run after thriving marriages. What's the final way we stand with him? What's our final point? It's this. We stand with him by helping <laughs> others. To pursue Jesus' deeper, higher righteousness, we need to adopt his stand. We need to understand why we are. We need to stand with him in our own marriages. But we've got to go one further. We see so many sermons, so many people want, what's in it for me? What do I get out of it? But we need to remember that Jesus sees us as a family, a community, a flock, a kingdom, a collective. That means this. Our approach to our king is this. He wants all of his people to commit to seeing all of the marriages thriving. We have to go beyond ourselves. We have to help other people. Those who are married, those who aren't married, how do we do this? How do we do this? Let's talk to a couple different segments of the Grace family. Let's do basically what we did last week, but let's apply it to marriage. Let me talk first to our youth. If you're a youth, if you're under the age of 18, would you just lean in? Would you hear me? How can you be pro-marriage even though you are not how can you? First is this. Pray for your parents' marriage. Ask them how you can pray for them. Extend grace to them. Living under your parents' roof, you will see them at their worst, and you probably will not see them at their best. They need grace. Rather than just lashing out and calling mom and dad a hypocrite or, or pointing out the contradictions, think of it this way. When mom and dad get it right, that's Jesus at work in them. But when mom and dad get it wrong, that's showing all of us that even parents need the gospel too. We need more of Jesus. Amen? So number one, pray for your parents. Pray for your parents. Give them grace. Number two is this. The best way to prepare for marriage is by growing in Christ and starting today. The things you need to live for Jesus in this world are the very things you're going to need to make a marriage work. What am I talking about? I'm talking about things like practicing mercy, extending grace, learning to listen, 
knowing how to forgive, knowing how to ask for forgiveness, knowing how to navigate conflict, knowing how to fight sin, knowing how to help someone else fight sin, knowing how to put self aside, and then developing an instinct for, wait a minute, I wonder if the Bible speaks to this, and getting a notice for going to God's Word to get answers. You will have to do that in any arena of life, but it's doubly true in marriage. If you practice now, guess what? To catch a godly spouse, you will become godly bait. And that's the best way to get a godly spouse. You can start doing this today. The more you run after Jesus, the more you're going to see Jesus in a future spouse. And that's going to help you assess, is this the one, is this not the one? That's our youth. Let's talk to the singles. Let's also talk about singleness. Let's also talk about the same-sex attracted because they count as singles. You matter too. How can you, in your singleness, be pro-marriage, even though you are not married? Let's add to what we said last week. The first thing I would say to you is this. You can be pro-marriage by not settling. By not settling. If you're here and you are single as you get older, typically the pressure mounts. The biological clock ticks faster and harder, and you will want to compromise and settle. Don't do it. Time and again, my wife and I have seen young adults enter into their late 20s, early 30s, and they compromise. They'll marry a non-Christian, and it never goes well. They'll marry someone who has character qualities, character issues that pop up in the marriage, and just go, ah, ah, this is not going well. Do not settle. There's a wonderful book called She's Got the Wrong Guy by Dr. Deepak Rizhu. It is an amazing resource. Please read it. Dads, moms, please read it with your daughters especially. Number one, don't settle. But I'd also say this. Number two, invest in the kingdom. Invest your singleness in the kingdom. Even if you're not married, you can be pro-marriage. You can see other marriages flourish when you adopt, when you mentor, when you get involved with the local church, get involved in your local community. And yes, this is not a sales pitch, but the babysitting can be such a blessing and help marriages around you thrive and grow. And guess what? As you do this, you will become a spiritual parent to others. Invest your singleness. Now let me talk to everybody. Please, adopt a single person in our church. Bring them into what you're doing. Invite them over. Just because you're single, and Paul says some people have the gift of singleness, that does not mean they have a superpower plus five immunity against loneliness. No, they experience loneliness, they feel loneliness, adopt them and bring them in. All right, let's take those last two. Adopting a single person and investing in the kingdom. How can we put those together? Here's a story for you, here's a story. This is from author Bethany Jenkins. She says this, this summer, I went with my friend from church, Becca, and her two daughters, Ellie and Claire, to an amusement park in Pennsylvania. Although her girls are now five and three, I've known them since they were born. They're precious to me. I bring them gifts, and we play Go Fish using extra-large frozen playing cards. Good to know Frozen's still around. At the park, Ellie desperately wanted to ride a roller coaster for the first time. Her mom, Becca, was eight months pregnant, so she couldn't go on the ride, so guess what? Bethany got to take little Ellie on the roller coaster. At first, Ellie was so excited. But as they walked up, what all kids do on that first time? They get scared. She reached out for the single lady's hand and held her hand 
and this single lady got to encourage her, help her feel safe, and take her on her first roller coaster ride. She says, when we got off and I reconnected with the mom, I said to Becca, I know you as a mom get to experience lots of firsts with your kids. First tooth, first laugh, first taste of ice cream, first day of school, but I don't. I almost never get to see a kid's first anything. But you gave me that gift today, and it's one of the best gifts I've ever received. Aw, oh, Grace, isn't that beautiful? Let's make Grace a place where we create stories like that. Amen. There's the singles. There's the singles. Let's close with this. Let's talk to the divorce. We see it. We know you're there. This can feel heavy, can't it? Old wounds, old scarring, you are loved. You're not being judged. In fact, let me say this to the room. First thing I want to say about the divorced in this room is this. Do not judge them. You don't know the backstory. You don't know the full story. There are people where their spouse left them even though they tried as hard as they could. You don't know if maybe they did have biblical grounds for divorce. I know a man in Houston whose wife left him, and he said the church was actually the hardest place to be because that's where he felt the judgment the most. It's like he walked around with a scarlet letter on his chest everywhere he went, and that's not okay. We never know the backstory. We never know if someone was divorced and then became a Christian, and that prior spouse would not reconcile. You don't know the story, so be very careful of judging and be very aware of our own failures with lust, with sexuality, and our own failures within marriage. Let's not create a second class of citizen here at Grace. Amen? Good. To the divorce, let me talk to you directly. We're going to close here. He knows. He knows. Your Father in heaven knows. In fact, walk with me through Jeremiah 3 and look at the hope held out to you. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1. Do you see that? Do you see Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24, 1 and the certificate of divorce? And you can't remarry her after you've divorced her. Do you see that kicking in right here? That's the backbone of verse 1. Israel is in a place where she has run after other nations. She's called a whore and a harlot. And she has united herself with other false gods and broken her covenant bond with the Lord God. Once she's gone, don't forget Deuteronomy 24, she's gone forever. There's no going back. And look at Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. God had grounds for divorce, and what did he do? Give her a certificate. Sent her away. He removed his protective love from the ten northern tribes of Israel. And what happened? They were invaded by the Assyrian Empire and they were carted away. They were removed from the promised land. Grace, if you are here and you are a divorcee, he knows. He knows what it is like to have a covenant marriage broken and trampled and ripped upon. He knows. Going back to Jeremiah, Israel was left with a problem. God's reminded them that in human marriage, there's no going back. He's showing them they're hopeless. They've gone after false gods. They've disunited with him, united with them. And God's saying, if this were a human marriage, I would not be able to take you back. I would follow my law. But look at Jeremiah 3.12. Look at Jeremiah 3.12. This may should be a life verse for you. Return. Return. When you come to faith in Jesus, 
Look at what happens. He calls us back. He calls us back. There's a twist. What is hopeless for man is not hopeless with God. His mercy, his love, his faithfulness trumps Israel's rebellion and unfaithfulness. In his great power and in his great love, he can overcome any separation. This is really good news for you. If you are here and your divorce was biblical, he knows what you have gone through and he has removed your shame. His love can overcome the pain of that separation. And if you're here, let me go one further. If you're here and maybe your divorce was unbiblical, maybe if it began as an adulterous relationship, know this. If you turn to Christ, he will no longer look on you in anger. His mercy is there covering you right now. He overcomes the separation between you and him caused by the separation between you and your spouse. Look at his mercy. Look at his grace. And finally, how can you trust that? You can trust that because when you trust in Jesus, you get something better than Israel. Whereas God was the husband to Israel, Jesus is now the husband to the church. And Jesus lived a perfect life of perfect faithfulness and perfect commitment towards his spouse. And now when he looks at you, he sees Jesus' perfect commitment. He sees Jesus' perfect faithfulness. And then he went one more. What did he do? He went and he died for his bride. He died to secure your forgiveness. And now look at the very bottom of the Look at those bold words. This is who you are in him. You are loved, you are cherished, and you are without spot or blemish. Go now in his cleansing. Be free from your guilt. Be free from your shame. And let's all go out and live for him by adopting his hard stance, knowing why we do so, standing with him by running after a thriving marriage, and standing with him by helping others to do the same. Amen, Grace? Let's pray. Father God, we love you and we praise you. Father God, how we cry out, we just need you. Father, be with us. Be with the divorce. Please comfort them. Please heal them. Please help them to come forward and give them more help and healing if they so need it. Father, be with us and help us not just to avoid divorce, but to run after a thriving marriage. We love you, Father, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.